Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online or later on demand, or listening to our podcast, we've been praying that you would experience the life-changing power of God in your life today. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. There's no need to pretend that everything's perfect in your life. It's certainly not in ours. We are regular people on a journey, allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives. We're learning to live like Jesus, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. People grow here because our team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. So if you're on that journey too, we're looking forward to lending a hand. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking questions and looking for answers too. So I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. We are on week three of our four-week series, Life Interrupted, Reluctant Prophet, Relentless God. And we've been working our way through the book of Jonah. In week one, we saw just how reluctant of a prophet Jonah was. He, he was disobeying God, choosing to run as far and fast in the opposite direction from the one that God told him to go. He literally travels as far away from his assignment as was humanly possible. And we discovered that when it comes to running from God, we aren't much different than Jonah. We saw how Jonah's sin affected other people, not just himself, because that's how sin is. It never travels alone. And because of Jonah's disobedience, he experienced the sovereignty of God through a deadly storm. We also discovered that God is definitely relentless in his love for Jonah and for humanity and we'll continue to see how God loves even those that seem unlovable and desperately wants to have relationship with all people, even the worst of the worst. Last week, we saw Jonah get a reality check as God dealt with Jonah's disobedience, you know, that whole whale thing. And Jonah has a bit of time to reconsider his choices, and he checks himself before he wrecks himself. Jonah chooses to get back on track with God's instructions to bring a message of judgment to Nineveh. We also learned what steps are necessary for repentance. And now here we are in week three. If you missed week one or two, I would encourage you to go to our website and to catch up. Before we begin, Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for second chances. We thank you for the opportunity to 
turn it around. We thank you that your relentless love chases after us. So God, give us hearts to be receptive, to hear and see, a mind to understand and know, and a heart to change. Use your powerful word today to change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, it's not our usual, usual approach, but I'm going to go all fire and brimstone on you for just a minute. Now, let me preface this by saying, saying that no one wants to be the bearer of bad news, but someone's got to take one for the team. For the last couple of weeks, we've been watching God in his relentless love chase after even the most ruthless and corrupt people. And today we'll see him give second chances to those we would consider undeserving of one. And this is the good news about God. God's love for us and the fact that he wants to have relationship with us is the good news. It's the greatest news. We can have a relationship with God by admitting that we're not great at running our own lives and we're going to give up that job to Jesus. And when we agree with God that we aren't good enough, nor will we ever be good enough to earn his love, when we accept the fact that God loves us unconditionally and forgives us when we come to him in repentance, when we surrender and give control of our lives to become a part of God's family, he will then live in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, guiding and leading us to become more like him and less like humanity. Now, when we die physically, we will live in heaven with God for all of eternity. That's the good news part. But there's a bad news part. Now, here's the hellfire and brimstone I was talking about. There is an alternative to surrendering to Jesus. It's choosing not to surrender. You can keep control. You can choose to reject Jesus. But there's a cost. And that ultimate cost is not going to heaven. The Bible teaches that those who do not go to heaven don't just hang out in the abyss, cease to exist, or just get buried in the ground. The Bible teaches that every person has a spirit that lives forever. And those who surrender to Jesus go to be with him, and those who don't go someplace else not just any place else. The Bible says if we don't have a relationship with Jesus, when we die, our spirits will go to hell. And hell is a place of unending torment and eternal separation from God. I mean, that's a lot of torment. That's not only the bad news, it's the worst news ever. And when we choose to reject Jesus, we reject God. And those who reject God don't get to be a part of his family. And only those in his family get to live with him forever. That's the bad news. But back to the good news. God is relentless in his love for humanity. And as we will see today, he's a God of second chances. It isn't too late for you to decide that you want to surrender to Jesus. Now, we know that at some point it will become too late. But it's not too late today. God's giving you another chance to say yes to him. And all you have to do is in the quiet of your heart, agree with God that you need him. 
and that you want to surrender yourself to Jesus. And if that's where you are today, I would love to hear from you and pray with you. Uh, please be sure and grab me after the service. But for now, let's get back to Jonah. Now, Jonah got to be the one to tell a terrifying people the bad news so that they would have a chance to react positively to the good news. Now, no one likes the hellfire and brimstone part of the gospel, the bad news part. We don't want to have to tell others about that part when we are telling them about the love of God. Sometimes we're hesitant to share the gospel because we don't want to share the bad news part. It appears that Jonah doesn't like to share the bad news part for a different reason. He doesn't want to share the bad news part because he doesn't want the Ninevites to accept the good news of the gospel. The part where God forgives and loves and where his mercy and grace are bigger than our sin. If the Ninevites hear and choose to act on the message that God is telling Jonah to give, then they will be forgiven and they'll be welcomed before God. And as we discussed in earlier messages, the Ninevites were the most vile, brutal, merciless people on earth at that time. Now, I'm sure Jonah wondered, why would God pick them? How, how can they deserve forgiveness? He'd forgotten that he didn't deserve it either, but God forgave him. Jonah may have even been a little bit on his high horse since he was actually a Hebrew, one of God's chosen people. And he viewed the Ninevites as beneath him. Their sin was surely greater than his could ever be. I mean, I can relate to that attitude only because I've had the same attitude. Have you? Have you ever measured your sin against someone else's? Ranked yourself either better or worse than them? How could God forgive them? I mean, surely they're worse than I am. Or maybe you're thinking the opposite. Maybe you're thinking you've made too many mistakes or are too far gone to be forgiven. How could God forgive me? And we forget that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one is out of God's reach. No one deserves forgiveness. It's because of God's relentless love that he's, he extends forgiveness to all of us. So let's see how God's second chances turn out for Jonah as he trades rebellion for obedience and for the Ninevites as they unexpectedly do the same. So let's begin in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message that I have given you. Jonah gets a second chance to obey God as he once again commissions Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh and this time Jonah obeys. Now, I thank God for second chances and third and however many times it takes me to get back in line with him. I've gotten out of line many times. In fact, just like all y'all, <laughs> there are many people in the Bible whose relationship with God went off the rails. But in the end, they were able to do great things for God's kingdom. They desperately needed another chance to get things right. And God gave them that chance. I mean, you don't have to read very far into the first book of the Bible to find someone. In Genesis, Abraham, God's chosen one to build the nation of Israel, fled to Egypt where he lied about his wife. More than once, 
Apparently he didn't learn his lesson that first time. And yet God restored Abraham and the rest is history. Moses killed a man and fled from Egypt and God still used Moses to be the leader of his people. Peter denied Jesus three times and yet Jesus forgave him. Peter later wrote the letters we know as First and Second Peter in the Bible. Jesus gave Peter a do-over, another chance, so to speak. And he was privileged to pen some of God's written word. John Mark was a reluctant missionary. In fact, the apostle Paul was so disappointed in him that initially he didn't want John Mark to be a part of his second missionary journey. But later Paul wrote uh, this in his letter to Timothy. He said, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. John Mark got another chance to be a part of building the church. You know, when we mess things up or go the wrong way, whether it's blatantly or just slightly disobeying God, the enemy is right at our back, whispering in our ear, there's no hope for your recovery. You can't come back from this. God could never use you now. But God is the God of second chances. He offers us an opportunity to trade places, to make a heart change from being rebellious to being obedient. And although we are beyond grateful for second chances, let's not use that as an excuse for sin or disobedience. I, I think we do that all too often. Sometimes we get a little too casual with God's grace and we underestimate how detrimental disobedience is to our heart, to our mind, to our relationships with Jesus and with other people. We tell ourselves that it doesn't really matter but it does. It causes pain to us, to others, and it grieves the heart of God. Now, we know that God doesn't need anyone to do anything for him. He's perfectly capable of bringing about his will for you and for me and for all of creation without our help. But God uses us for spiritual growth. I mean, we grow when we are obedient to live how God wants us to live. God uses his people to show others what Jesus is like through our actions and our attitudes and to speak the truth of God's word as we help others understand God better. But as Warren Wearsby says, God is more concerned about his workers than he is about the work. Our obedience to God and becoming more like Jesus is what God cares about because that's what brings us peace and freedom and it deepens our relationship with him. Through our obedience to God's will, we gradually think more, act more, and become more like Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 3. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now and Nineveh will be destroyed. Now we're told that Nineveh is a gigantic city that took days to walk through. The city of Nineveh, uh, Nineveh proper was located on the Tigris River on a plain that was surrounded by rivers and a mountain range. And the rivers kind of came down to a V-shape and then the top of that plain was enclosed with a mountain range so it made a natural fortification for the area. 
And in this fortified enclosure, there were several prominent cities. And it may seem strange to call Nineveh such a great city in size when historically cities would have been very small and surrounded by walls for protection. And in times of peace, many people lived outside of the city. The cities were walled for protection and where, where the fortress for the people would come during the time of siege. And now in, in the Nineveh, in Nineveh area, there were actually three walled cities, Nineveh proper, Akala, and Korsabad. And Nineveh became the capital and the entire area was called Nineveh. One ancient writer describes the circumference of this area to be 27 miles. And Jonah gets only one day in on his trek through the city and he spreads the message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, some versions of the Bible use the word overturned. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. His sermon is very short, only five words in the original Hebrew, and it, it seems a little bit strange to me. Now, as the guys from the Bible Project put it, uh, they point out, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong or what they should do to respond. And there's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeably, there's no mention of God. Why is that? Is Jonah intentionally giving the bare minimum of information? You know, just the facts, ma'am? Is he trying to sabotage God's message? It kind of seems as there's just no effort on his part. I mean, is he intentionally giving less than half an effort? Is he hoping this, that this whole thing doesn't work? I mean, remember Jonah hates the Ninevites with a passion as they have tortured and killed his people. And he does not want the Ninevites even to have an opportunity to trade condemnation for forgiveness. And for all he knew, any minute he could be skinned alive literally or impaled on a pole for just showing up in the city. It would not have been uncommon for the Ninevites to do that. The truth is, we don't know. We don't know if this is the only thing that Jonah spoke. It appears so, but it doesn't actually say that he only spoke five Hebrew words. The important thing here is that Jonah decided to obey God and deliver the message, and even if it appears like a shallow attempt to get the Ninevites to repent, we see that. So let's move on to verse 5. The, the people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Now, the last word of Jonah's short sermon in some versions is overturned, meaning turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed like Sodom was in Genesis 19.21, but can also be used to mean transformation, something being turned over and changed into its opposite. And we see that in 1 Samuel 10.6. So ironically, Jonah's words did come true, but not in the way he intended. Nineveh gets turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy. So just like that, God's message hits home and the Ninevites not only heard with their ears, but they respond with action to what they heard. Everyone from the greatest to the least heard and responded to God's message. Now, we don't have to be polished or perfect in our message of God's love for others. Um, 
I don't recommend a shallow approach with half an effort. Not because God can't use it. Clearly he can and he does. But don't we want to be a people who do our best for the one who created and loved us enough to save us? I mean, we don't have to be perfect in what we do. We just have to say yes to God. And remember, Jesus commanded us to tell others about him and how they can have a relationship with him. The gospel, in the gospel writer, Matthew records these words, which we know as the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Those are our marching orders from Jesus. We are to go. That's an action word. We don't have to be polished or perfect when we share Jesus. If you need some pointers, go to our website and watch our last series, Magnetic, Activating the Power of Influence. God will use our efforts, however clumsy they are. And again, I would rather be clumsy with heartfelt effort than lazy with little effort. I mean, God will do what he is going to do. Even so, I want to do my best with God, what God has given me, and at any, at any given time, I don't want to be a slacker for Jesus. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, not welcome home, slacker. <laughs> now notice that the Ninevites believe with action. When they believe in God, they demonstrate it by declaring a fast and putting on burlap to show their sorrow for their sin. Other versions use the term sackcloth. And wearing sackcloth was a Hebrew custom indicating humility before God. Clearly, the Ninevites knew something about Hebrew culture and showing humility before God. Let's pick it up in verse 6. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Even the king of Nineveh got in on the action. He also dressed himself in clothes of humility. Uh, oftentimes, dressing in burlap or sackcloth was accompanied with ashes. And ashes were a reminder of where humanity came from. A reminder that back in the book of Genesis, when God created man, he created man from the dust. So we're seeing a wicked king and a vile people agree with God regarding their sin. And we see them turn away from their sin with their actions and show humility to God and turn toward him. And then in verse 7, then, his king, then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their either way, evil ways and stop all violence. Now these pagan people of Nineveh actually repented. And what an unexpected turn of events. I mean, the most corrupt people turned toward God 
And once again, God uses something unexpected and the people that we don't expect as a positive example. The repentance of the Ninevites will stand in stark contrast to Israel's stubbornness. God's chosen people of Israel would receive many messages of repentance from the prophets. Over and over again, they refused to hear God's message and change their ways. On the other hand, the Ninevites seem to pull a one and done, and they hear it and they repent. Look at what Jesus says to the religious leaders when they don't believe God's message. You can find this in Matthew chapter 12. One day, some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want to show you, you want, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. But Jesus replied, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. So it's not just hearing God's word or reading it for that matter that's important. It's our obedient response to his word that pleases him. And that's why here at Dayspring, we care so much about the application of God's word to your everyday life. And we can have a whole lot of head knowledge, just like the teachers of religious law, but we, if we don't put our knowledge into action, it's just more stuff for us to know. It doesn't change us or help us to influence anyone else toward Jesus. It's only when our knowledge of God's word makes its way into our hearts and those flows out of us in the form of obedience and love for others that it glorifies God and impacts our world. Moving on. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. Now, these verses bring up the age-old question. Does God change his mind? Well, the simple answer is no. He doesn't change his mind. But let's unpack that just a little bit. Now, when we read the New Living Translation, we see the phrase, he changed his mind. In other translations, the word used is relent. God is always beyond our understanding, and human language cannot adequately describe God or his attributes. And when we come across a verse in the Bible that we don't understand or that seems confusing or contradictory, we should look to other verses to clarify and strengthen our understanding. These two verses are an excellent example of how we might assume, based on one phrase, that God changes or that he changes in his mind. But in other areas of Scripture, it's clear to us that God does not change his mind and he does not change. So let's look at a, a few other passages so you can see what I'm talking about. In Numbers 23, 19, God is not man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. He has, he, has he ever spoken and failed to act? 
Has he ever promised and not carried it through? And in 1 Samuel 15, 29, and then he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. And James 1.17 says, Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. The Bible is clear. God doesn't change. So back to the verses in Jonah. There isn't actually a contradiction. Jonah says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed, or as I mentioned earlier, overturned would be more accurate. Nineveh was overturned. The hearts of the people were turned over. The city of Nineveh turned a new leaf, and in turn, it turned from being a wicked city to a repentant, forgiven city. God sees their change of heart and behavior and extends forgiveness. Unfortunately, they eventually turn their wicked ways back, and Nineveh does ultimately get destroyed. But for now, they've chosen repentance. So, whether they repented forever and were forgiven, or they returned to their wicked ways and were destroyed, God still did not change his mind. When we repent and obey God, we are forgiven. When we deny God, we receive the consequences of our choice. And if we look back to chapter 1, verse 2 of Jonah, God tells Jonah to announce his judgment to Nineveh because he sees how wicked its people are. It doesn't give specific details regarding what he told Jonah to say. Then in chapter 3, where God gives Jonah his instructions once more, God says, deliver the message I have given you. Again, no detail to the message. So whether Jonah's message was accurate or not, we don't exactly know. What we do know is that the city repented and God forgave them. And we can rest in the fact that God does not change, nor does he change his mind. And I'm guessing that most of us would, consider, would not consider ourselves as bad as the Ninevites. I mean, they were savage murderers who tortured their victims. But remember, we can't play the comparison game when it comes to sin. And remember that sin is anything out of alignment with God's will. When we are out of alignment with God, we are in alignment with sin. And sometimes we get out of alignment because we're impatient and we want to help God. We want to help God get the job done. We jump ahead of God. Or maybe we react before we really pray about it. Or we just can't stand the situation, so we have to do something to get that ball rolling. And we forget that God is at work in the waiting. Sometimes we get out of alignment and we don't even recognize that we're out of alignment or we're ignoring it. This happens when our relationship with Jesus is or has become distant, like an acquaintance or someone we would say hello to in the grocery store, instead of an intimate relationship that we are intentionally cultivating daily. And we don't even recognize how far we're wandering away from him because we don't even miss him. Sometimes we get out of alignment and it's 100% intentional. We know what we are doing 
is wrong. And we do it anyway. The pleasure or the desire overrides our love for Jesus and the next thing you know, we are off the rails. And I know that's harsh saying that we don't love Jesus, we're intentionally out of line, but it's true. When we intentionally sin, we are in that moment loving the sin more than Jesus. And there are some of you who are intentionally rejecting Jesus. You, you think you aren't ready for a relationship with Jesus. He's definitely ready for you. But you have to choose him. Again, that's free will. It's always your choice. But might I refer back to the fire and brimstone at the front end of this message? Now, the Christianese word for being out of alignment with God might be lost. I mean, when we... When someone is not following Jesus, we say he's a lost soul, meaning far away from Jesus, out of alignment with God. It describes one who is wandering, searching for something, usually trying to fill a hole in their heart, in their life, that only God can fill. We call that the God-shaped hole. Nothing can fill that hole in our hearts but God. And thank God for second chances. When we're out of alignment with him, he will look for us and come after us and give us that second chance to get back in line with him. So I want to look at some New Testament examples of God searching for the lost. In Luke chapter 15, the Pharisees are upset uh, with Jesus because he's associating with sinners. So Jesus told them this story. If a man had a hundred, has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search the one until he finds it? And when he's found it, will he joyfully carry it home on his shoulders? When he arrives, will he call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Jesus goes after the lost. And then in, chapter, or in verse 8, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep under the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels, even when even one sinner repents. Now, the ten coins are a Jewish version of our modern-day wedding ring. When a woman is married, was married, she would wore, she wear a headband of silver coins to signify that she was now a wife. And it would have been a big deal for her to lose one of those coins, and she would have searched in desperation to find it. Jesus goes after the lost. He gives us second chances. And I am so thankful for that. I don't want to take it for granted. I don't want to squander the blessing. I want to continue to cultivate my relationship with Jesus by my daily time in his word and prayer. It isn't always easy. I mean, I get distracted by time constraints. 
I have nights of little sleep and I would rather trade my Bible and my journal time for another 15 to 30 minutes of sleep. And there are times when, when I feel far away from God, so it's just plain discipline that gets me going with my quiet time. And I also have times when my laziness wins out. I think we all have these feelings at one time or another. But the fact is, we all get to choose. So we have to ask ourselves a question. How much do I care about my relationship with Jesus? What does my daily schedule reveal about what's important to me? And the next question we have to ask ourselves is, what do I need to do to cultivate my relationship with Jesus, whether I feel like it or not? Do I need to stop something? Do I need to start something? And we all need help. So the third question, what kind of help do I need on my journey of putting Jesus first? We are here to help you on your journey. Nothing energizes us more than to come alongside you as you grow in your walk with Jesus. God will come after you. Will you go after him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we repent of not coming after you. We acknowledge that we allow our lives to get in the way, our sleep to get in the way, our desires to get in the way. And we take you off of your rightful throne over our lives. And so, Jesus, may I boldly pray, whatever it takes, God, do whatever it takes to get us back in alignment with you or in alignment with you for the first time. We thank you, God, for the chance after chance. We thank you for the opportunity at all to be a part of your family. So let us not squander that. We love you, Lord, and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, and all the people said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's Word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of the faithful giving of people who call Dayspring their home church. God's work in their lives has left them changed, has made them more like Jesus, and they have come to understand how God uses their generosity to encourage others to become like Jesus as well. So if you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God would give you opportunities to use your influence for the glory of His kingdom. Oh, and one more thing. 
Thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives. So keep sowing.